Hi everyone, it's Rachel here. A couple quick notes before we start the show. As you'll hear in a moment, uh, Melody is not on the episode this week. She will be back next week. She is uh, going through a very busy end of the semester, so please send some good vibes her way. There's just a lot on her plate right now. And also, because of her absence, I forgot about our traditional commercial plug, which she, as you all know, is uh, the one who always does that. So as a quick reminder, you know you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, Spotify, and our website, fkjphd.com. You can also email us at fkj.phd at gmail.com. And as always, we would so appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. Twenty thousand feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors, and I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD. An hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel, and today we have a special guest host, Dr. Timothy Alexiak. Say hello, Timothy. Hello. <laughs> um, so some of you longtime listeners may remember that Timothy was on, I should, should have checked the episode, but a very early episode, probably within the first 20 episodes. Uh, to talk about his work on rhetorical listening and queering rhetorical listening specifically. And Timothy and I are currently in Maine on a writing retreat, and Melody is very busy with the end of her school year. So because of all those things coming together, we decided to have Timothy on as a guest slash sort of co-host. So what I'm really excited about is that Timothy has a new article that is forthcoming in Pretext, a journal of rhetorical theory. And I have had the privilege of seeing some early stages and iterations of this article. And literally just this morning, I read what will be published. And it is, it's a really brilliant article. And I think it's going to be really important to queer theory, rhetorical studies, um, writing studies, um, and a bunch of other studies. <laughs> um, the name of the article is called Composing in a Sling, BDSM, Power, and Non-Identification. And I'm so excited to talk to him about it so you all can hear it. But first, Timothy, will you remind people sort of who you are and what you're all about sort of beyond what I just explained? Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I love you, and I love the podcast, and so it's just really great to be able to be here again, talking with you. I hope we get a good discussion going and um, are provocative and helpful for our listeners in terms of thinking through queer sex, uh, the rituals of BDSM, and kind of what that means about writing and composing, because those are the things I think about. It's it's great. Um, specifically, I'm a rhetorical theorist and, and rhetoric and composition professional. And um, I try to think about uh, how to queer writing and how to teach queerly uh, about writing and how to get students to compose in queer ways or to think about writing as a conscious choice. Um, and when we talk about writing instruction in, in, from a rhetorical perspective, it's that students envision audiences and those audiences help tailor the way that they compose. So it's not just what does the writer want to do, but how can the writer reach and get audiences to either understand what they're doing or to be transformed by what they're reading. So it's, it's connected to this, these audiences. Specifically, I deal with listening. So for me, in general, listening is a demonstration of transformation in light of the text that we receive. So it's not just, oh, I've read that, cool, great, or oh my gosh, that that text is transforming. It's, it's, it's not just persuaded, but saying whatever we think about a text, how has that text changed us? In, in, in what ways has it changed us? In our thinking, in our being, in our feeling, in our in our day-to-day -day actions. And I think every text can have the potential to transform us. And so it's all incumbent upon us to demonstrate that transformation. And that builds more effective bonds, connections between 
leaders and writers. Um, those are the kind of things that I mull around and think about. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> also, is it okay that we give your affiliation? So you're at UMass Boston right yes, now. Yes. Yep. So assistant professor in English at UMass Boston. And as you were talking, I was reminded of the bell hooks quote, I came to theory because I was hurting and I found in it a location for healing. And so I think that's really related to, I, I might've messed that up a little bit. I'll, I'll correct that for the listeners in the newsletter or something. Um, but just this idea that these texts can be, and we're, I, I've been talking about embodiment lately, as you know, with the work that I've been doing and you're going to talk about embodiment and bodies as well. And so to think about these these texts as something that actually imp impact our body, um, even insofar as the idea of healing, which mm -hmm. is pretty cool. So let's get in. That's a great transition into this amazing article that you just wrote. Generally, I want to sort of go big and then get more specific. So explain to us why it's important to bring queer sex specifically back into rhetorical theory. So I ask that question because this journal that this article is going to be published, it's a special, it's the second or the first special issue in a bunch of years of this, of this pretext journal um, on called Dirty Sexy. And so they're specifically focusing on this idea that we need to actually talk about actual sex, not just mm -hmm. like queer we can queer the water bottle like <laughs> but no like queer is sex like why so why why do is that important so that's that's really great um Jacqueline Rhodes uh, um, um, incredible queer feminist scholar out of Michigan State um was asked to be um a guest editor of Pretext and she was interested ways about where the sex has gone in queer theory. Of the many questions that the special issue tries to answer, uh, Jacqueline Rhodes asked, what happened to sexual rhetoric? And so we could kind of think about that. Those of us who pay attention to queer theory have noticed the affective term and uh, uh, embodied emotions. And the key player in that is Sarah Ahmed. And there's not a lot of sex happening in that. Um, there's also futurity debates that have been started by Lee Edelman and um, Jack Halberstam really took that up. Jose Munoz, Esteban Munoz is getting into the temporality of debates and futurity, but there's not a lot of sex in that. Um, and so this special issue, which is coming out later this year or earlier next year, is the first in over 25 years of rhetoricians trying to think about queer theory in, in theory and their relationship and, and Dr. Rhodes, uh, Jackie kind of said, okay, let's think about sex specifically. And that was a really provocative call to me. Like, I, yeah, that's, that's really great. It's transgressive. It's a little bit edgy, um, particularly in rhetoric and composition, my field, which talks, tends to talk about things like um, the classroom is already a sex space mm. or that there's um, heterosexual folks privileged by the fact that they don't have to think about spaces as sex spaces. Mm -hmm. But if you're a sexual minority, then you see sex everywhere. So a lot of that work was thinking about how the classroom is sexed, how when you, you know, students and teachers are, and Bell Hooks wrote about this too, uh, the desires operating here. And so um, I think that this, this is kind of a way to get back to us. I, I uh, was thinking about an anecdote when I was a young undergraduate student, an activist came to talk with us, a bunch of you know, like young gay people who finally get like the undivided attention of an activist. And they said something to the effect of, they don't hate us because we love. They hate us because of who we fuck. And I would add, uh, to be ace inclusionary or you know, deal with the, mm -hmm. the romantic mm -hmm. spectrum, that um, who we don't fuck is also part mm -hmm. of what makes us a marginalized group. And that has stuck with me for so many years that it's, it's the fucking that people have a difficult time with. And so I thought it was just really brilliant for Jackie to ask a bunch of young scholars and people in the field of queer rhetorics to kind of think about that specifically. Um, why is it important? One, then, because we've excised sex from queer theory and queer rhetorics in some ways. And let's get back to that. Um, another reason is I think it can enrich, and as hopefully we'll get to, queer sex actually does have things to say to rhetorical theory that can be illustrative and instructive. 
Um, and I don't want to be a part of any kind of discipline that doesn't allow us to think about what sex can do in terms of our thinking. Um, it's so important to, to us, even if we're not, uh, if we're aromantic, like completely aromantic and have no sexual desire or sexual desire is not part of how we identify, it's still a part of the discussions and still a part of what, what we, how we could think through. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. That was a wonderful answer. Um, and your, I love your inclusion of asexuality in the A-spectrum, which reminds me, quick plug, uh, I think we both learned a lot from the asexuality talk at the Mid-Atlantic LGBTQ conference. Am I missing a word? LGBTQA conference. LGBTQA conference, um, as I'm talking about asexuality. Um <laughs> So, which I will quickly plug, I was a keynote there last year, Timothy uh, has or organized it, uh, chaired it, and it's a wonderful conference. I will put the CFP, they're currently accepting um, proposals, and if you're in the area or can travel there, I would recommend it. It's a really great conference, and there was a really good panel on asexuality last year. Um, so it was explosive. It like, totally yeah. changed our, our, our thinking about, like, oh my gosh. Yeah. The romantic it, spectrum is such a fascinating thing to think through. Totally, totally. Um and I love that that conference, like, first of all, I love you because you are a seasoned professor and that was a panel of, was it undergraduates? It was all, all undergraduates. And I think that that intergenerational discussion is something I'm very invested in. And I think that conference actually lends itself to that very easily. And I really like that. So quick plug on that. Thank you. But thank you. Yeah, that, um, that was a really comprehensive answer and it makes so much sense to me. And I think we'll definitely, we're going to talk more about, about sex in a, in a moment, but to step back and sort of the framing of this in your essay, um, since I've known you, I've also known about Krista Radcliffe, <laughs> um, because that is your sort of person who you adore, but also generously not even push back at, but want to expand upon, I think. Um, you, you describe in this essay that you want to be a generous accomplice to her work. So tell us, for those of the listeners who don't know who Krista Radcliffe is, if you could briefly explain like that framework that you're beginning from and how you're expanding on it. Yeah. Um, there are some books <laughs> that you read and you think, well, that's that. My life has changed. Krista uh, Radcliffe's rhetorical listening, identification, gender whiteness was one of those books. Um, in addition to being a brilliant piece of scholarship that has won multiple awards Several scholarly organizations have, have recognized this book as the best book of the, the year. Um, she, as a human being, is very, very generous. Uh, she enacts and she engages her scholarship, uh, at least in my experiences. And so she's been very, very, she's been a good mentor to me, as well as providing life-changing thoughts. Um, so queer listening. Now, what I'm trying to do is queer rhetorical listening. And I'm trying to do so in a way that's a generous accomplice. What I'm saying is a generous accomplice with Chris's work. And so queer listening explores what the ear has to offer in moments of cross-cultural negotiation. So when we're trying to communicate across and with differences, how do we foreground what the ear has to offer? How do we center that? Um, it also centers reception in ways that don't dismiss the need to produce texts. It asks the, that we pay attention to how we are receiving texts and base that on, um, base our invention, our production of text, on how we are receiving. That is, listening is not passive. And we need to make sure that we understand listening not as the acquiescence of speech, but as a foregrounding, how are we receiving these texts? Does it make sense? Cool. Yes. Sorry, this is my best. This is my <laughs> this is your professor. <laughs> I totally went into professor. Yes, Dr. Rowe, yes. So, um, <laughs> so what does it mean to be, so as, as I was reading rhetorical listening, as a queer man, as a queer cisgender white man, um, I noticed that Chris, and I, I've said this to her, and I think it's it's clear when you read the book as well, that the issue of sexuality um, and homosexuality is not really confronted or taken up. And one of the reasons is that Chris's focus is on whiteness and race and gender and those intersectioning. Uh, identities and how they play out in cross-cultural negotiations. So really what I see here is an opportunity to expand on that work and consider sexuality 
uh, issues of sexuality, trans identities, um, you know, queer kind of stuff. So I see that not as a lack, I see it as an opportunity. And therein lies the first aspect of being a generous accomplice with theorists you love, is that you're not trying to play gotcha or say, why didn't you consider this? You're not trying to, call, I'm not trying or interested in calling Chris out for her not considering sexuality in this book. I'm not interested in that. I think that's, that's not fair uh, to expect a scholar to have accounted for everything that's important to us. Um, it's it takes us off from trying to understand what it is that the scholar is doing or that the person who has produced this, this work is trying to do. So with that in mind, I, I, I want to expand. I want to thicken. I want to kind of consider how rhetorical listening functions differently when we add sexuality to the mix, when we add logics relating to sexuality to the mix. So that's one of the ways in which we can be a generous accomplice with someone. We can avoid the um, attempt to expose the flaw and instead opt to kind of layering or accreting uh, onto what that theory is. I love that. And I love that because if we do say you didn't account for sexuality, it then it becomes laundry list and additive because it could be, what about disability? What about immigration status? What about, and then it we sort of lose meaning for the sake of being the wokest who can name all of the things and that project wouldn't be as strong if she was trying to account for all of those things uh and so i i, I just really appreciate that yeah and i i want to say that two two scholars have informed my my thinking on what it means to be a generous accomplice with other scholars uh eve sedgwick wrote a book touching feeling where she talks about uh paranoid and reparative readings. And so those listeners who are familiar with that book heard Eve Sedgwick in my, in my description of generous accomplice. Um, it's we're looking for layering and building upon each other. We're not looking to tear down, we're looking to, to move forward in advance. Um, identify the areas for development, not to tear down and make this person seem like they should have known better even if in the deep recesses of our mind, it's what they should have known better, damn it. Um, and rhetoric and composition, my field of rhetoric and composition has been doing this since the 70s, actually. Peter Elbow has come up with a concept called the believing and doubting games. Um, before him, there was a book called Modern Dogma and the Rhetoric of Ascent by Wayne Booth, where they're trying to figure out when should we assent? When should we change our minds, you know, in the face of kind of, difficult discourses to, coming at us. But people have been in my field, and in, in theory, trying to avoid the suspicious combative uh, perspective and try instead to kind of think through what's good about this. What, what, what needs more development here? And that's kind of what I think we, we need a lot of, especially in our queer activist politics today. Totally, and I would say that, um, I don't know if, there was an article, and I should know the name of the person who wrote it because I reference it a lot, mm -hmm. but the allies, or accomplices, not allies. And I don't mm -hmm. know if you saw that article and if that's helped yeah. sort of reframe your language around um, what it means to be sort of in action of something. Um, the wand card, if you will. Nick and I did a tarot. I might cut that. <laughs> yes. The wand and tarot is some action. Anyway, uh, versus sort of a standby pass passivity. So um, all that is, that's, that's awesome. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. So everybody should check out Chris Radcliffe for more on that. So I want to move even more deeply into this beautiful essay that you wrote that is what I love about, I love a lot of things about this essay, but I, I love that what you're arguing for is also demonstrated in how you're writing it. So the, the form matches the content and it's really, really awesome. I kind of don't even want to spoil it for people, so I'm not going to sort of give specifics, but just know that Timothy pays attention to form in a way that is really, really cool. And what in queer theory, I think we would say is it, it's, tr it's troubling. It troubles the writing process. So how can our writing trouble theory? Can you talk about how you do take up space on the page and you, you can go into details or not, uh, and how you understand that in relationship specifically to BDSM, which you draw on in this essay, which you, you know, that's sort of the foundation for your argument. Um, and more, and then more specifically, after you sort of address that, can you talk ex particularly about 
this concept, this, this not even the concept of the sling, the sling. You're literally talking <laughs> about the sling. Um, so, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, it, it's tough to distill a 28-page uh, article mm-hmm. into uh, some talking, but I'm, I'm going to try. Um, one of the things that I do in, in the essay, in the, in the article, is... Um, interject personal narratives of experiences with BDSM. Uh, there are four specific vignettes, and they, they pop up in weird spots, or suddenly. And so I even play with some line breaks, where um, the piece starts off with uh, me hooking up with someone, and then him suggesting that his husband and I would, uh, would have a good time. And that was kind of the entryway into my first and only experience with a professional seasoned BDSM practitioner. Um, and so I talk about what happens to me as a, as a novice, as a way novice, when I experience the, the, the abilities and capabilities of a professional BDSM practitioner. So all the tools, all the kind of um, steps that they take my body through in these experiences. And Rather than completing any one narrative, I kind of then will start the academic essay, <laughs> the academic portion. And so there are these kind of unusual stops and starts throughout the piece. And as a submissive in a BDSM experience, um, I have been shocked, jarred, or um, made an embodied sensation or an intellectual thought or a feeling or thoughts in my head have been jarred and, and disrupted by the, the whip, the sound, the anal electrode, the, the sling itself has, has caused me to not be able to focus or to shift and break my narratives of, of the, what the experience may mean or how it feels. And so using my experience as, as, a, as a submissive, I, I kind of wanted to emulate that on the page. How do we do that? And so this piece is not just a personal narrative, but it's an attempt to get you, the, the reader, to experience that, that kind of jarring disconnect um, where you think you're going along one place, where you think you're getting a sexy narrative, where you think you're getting some theoretical intervention, but then suddenly, boom, it changes into something else suddenly. Um, and ultimately what's happening here and what my intention hopefully is, is that as a reader, you consent to that by continuing to read. You have engaged the page and chosen to move your eye to the next space, to the next space. So as the author, I am in this unusual role of being the dominant, controlling how you receive the narrative and asking you along the way in the reading to pay attention to your body. And, but when you start to pay attention too closely, I'm going to fuck with it <laughs> in these ways that are not, that don't break with the cons- rituals of consent. And that phrase rituals of consent comes from my friend Kathleen Livingston, who does brilliant work on consent. But like reading an article, you're consenting to see what's happening on the page. And as the author, I've created this ritual for you, this experience for you. And I think that that's kind of a BDSM thing. That's kind of a BDSM relationship. So when I think about my lived experiences as a submissive in the, the breaks of my attention and focus, I try to, in this article, relive that for you, but in ways that don't um, break with those rituals of consent, which are super, super crucial in, in all BDSM processes. Uh, Pat Calathea, or Calathea, I've only ever read their I name. I always say Calathea, but I could be wrong. Uh, talks about the importance of establishing the ritual, being clear with the ritual before engagement. And so when we pick up a journal article, I wanted to play with that. I wanted to play. You are entering into the scene by opening the pages. Mm. And so now, what can I do with your body? What can I do with you? And this article is an attempt to explore that. I love that. And it, it does do that. And, and <laughs> we get a little sort of meta. We get it as the reader because this is what you're explaining. And so anybody who's going to be sort of engaging with this in the first place is probably going to be able to make that connection. Um, 
I also, if, if I can, mm-hmm. you, know, you were telling, we were discussing this a little bit last night and you told me a story, just this is another example of how this might work. Well, I have two examples. One is that poetry does this all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, poetry is very invested in spatiality most yes. of the time. Um, and so this is, this is such a gift to academic writing, right? Because poetry is pleasurable. <laughs> um, even if it's difficult, so even if it's difficult, one, which is also this process of BDSM, right? Sort of pleasure and, and pain and unpacking. And academic theory, for me, part of the pleasure of theory is that it, that you do have to work for it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So, um, fucking like a submissive, I guess. <laughs> um so another example of this that you shared is that a colleague of yours who does fat studies work talks about fucking with margins and taking up space on the page as a representation of fucking with our expectations of size, even in writing. And so if we're talking about fatness, like fucking screw 12 point font and margins, you know, yeah. so that's, I loved that you shared that. So I wanted to give a shout out to my, my dear friend and colleague, Abby Noblock one of the most in profound conference presentations I've ever seen was, uh, was hers talking about fat rhetorics and what would it mean not just to talk about fatness, but to compose fat rhetorics. Mm-hmm. And she offered um, fucking with the margins, where your text spills outside of the margins, where the footnotes take on certain feels and certain part of creating the academic argument. And so when you read a fat rhetoric text, you're actually seeing the body of the text spill mm. out and, and, and resist containing the normative margins. It was so thoughtful and so brilliant and I was just really appreciative. And so in, in my work, I'm actually inspired stylistically by, by Abby's and um, by Abby's scholarship and by Kathleen Livingston, who was one of the first scholars, um, young scholars, who showed me the beauty of lyricism and personal narrative as scholarship. And so mm. this is kind of my way of thanking them for honoring me with their work, just to try to insert myself into the piece in ways that are true to my experiences and also help us to think differently. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think we, I think we kind of touched on the next question I had for you, mm-hmm. which is how is writing like BDSM in terms of our pleasure and, and in our pain. Do you yeah. want to say anything further about that? Um, I want to say that, um, okay, so I'm a rhetoric and composition professional. And so ultimately it's not just rhetorical theory I'm after, but it's also how, how does, what does this say about writing? <laughs> you know, like, so um, I don't want to say go into a classroom and, and talk actual sex with your students that, that a lot of people have precarious working conditions and those kind of conversations can be um, read as unprofessional or students can clap back in ways that um, undercut uh, our, our ability to be to work in the academy so I want to I want to be careful but in terms of theorizing what does BDSM teach us about the composing process what does it mean to compose in the sling mm-hmm. one of the, the takeaways or one of the ideas I'm working on is when I am in a sling my body is uncomfortable. My body floats up and down depending on where the chains are being pulled. The, um, the rhythms of being left in a sling uh, are unusual. They're not stable. And so part of what it means to be put into a sling, you have to face backwards in the sling. You have to fall back into it. If you try to get on a sex swing with, you know, face first and put your knee, it's, you're going to be an awkward mess and possibly fall and actually mm-hmm. hurt yourself and not in a good way. Um, so there's all these kind of disoriented kind of weird things that happen to your body when you are experiencing uh, BDSM sex as a submissive in a swing. And so how can we emulate that disoriented process, that kind of unsureness of our bodies? Well, the call then is to create pedagogies where we have an uncomfortable relationship with the objects of composing. Uh, When we set to type, it's very comfortable feeling. We know exactly how that works. When we write with an actual pen, we know how that works. What are ways in which we can continue to compose, but in ways that are unfamiliar to our body? Um, That's one way way we can compose in a sling. Mm. 
the other thing is collaborative writing is, is pretty big in rhetoric and composition. How do we compose together? A lot of the scholarship on collaboration is two people together dominating a page or working towards a project. So I think if we're going to compose in the sling, we have to be much more aware that the collaborative process is messy, sloppy, and disorienting. And what results from allowing ourselves to be a part of that disorientation. So it's not so much the end product of writing that I'm interested in, but the process of together, how can we mess with this um, in ways that don't have like an end goal in mind. We're too quick to end goal, I think, in a lot of our writing practices. Um, so together, how do we mess with the page? The third thing is our composing in the sling helps us understand that the page actually does dominate us. It puts us in submission. When we try to write and it's not working, like it's the page that's dominating us. We're trying to wrest control over the page and it's not letting us. And so if we can learn submission to the page, maybe we can feel a little bit differently about our inabilities to write. We could give over to the page. We could give over to that dominance and not feel defeated by it, but feel open to other affective responses to the page dominating us. And I think there's something interesting when writing works well, when the page submits to us, it's not that the page goes away. It's that there's this new positive affective dimensions to our relationship with the page. And I'm asking to, for us to foreground that in ways that keep the submission and domination in the foreground. And the pleasure of all of that. When the page, like, when I'm trying to write and it's not happening, it's really terrible and I feel really shitty, but I, there's a kind of like a, I talk and I feel through that. Mm -hmm. I keep at it. Mm -hmm. And I, I lost three sentences the other day and was really sad about it. I was like, damn you sentences got, <laughs> have gone away. And I had to mourn and I had to sit in that kind of feeling of I've, I've lost something and I, there was, was an affective dimension to that. Mm. Like I could feel, I could feel hurt yeah. by what happened to the loss there. And, and I don't want to suggest that BDSM is about hurt and loss. Mm -hmm. I'm talking, I'm more interested in the act of submitting to the feelings mm -hmm. that are uncomfortable, mm -hmm. submitting to those who are dominating us, the mm -hmm. page, the collaboration, the tools and the rituals of writing, mm -hmm. that the submission can be an act of invention, can help us invent new new styles of writing. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> Two things, three things came to mind. First, I mentioned this last night when we were having this discussion as well that people, anybody who listens to the podcast know I love Adrienne Marie Brown. She's, I mean, I just adore her. And in her book, Emergent Strategy, her footnotes are often very much about like, I had this conversation with my friend. This is my source. Like this is, this is, this, here's this, I had lunch with Kendra and here's what she said. Um, I don't think there's a Kendra in the book. I don't know why that name came to mind. Um, so that to me feels like a, a version of communality that I would love to see more of in, in scholarly work and any work. Two, I was thinking about, so I don't have them now because I took a break for financial reasons and also just, just because I did. Um, I was started getting acrylic nails. Listeners of the show also know that I started doing that. And they're beautiful, and I fucking love them. They're also, it's like kind of a painstaking process. Not actually painful, but it's like, it's you have got acrylic nails? Oh, Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I am it also, yes, <laughs> it also makes typing harder. Mm -hmm. And so when I had to learn to type with acrylics, I was like, oh, like, I this is a challenge, but it is so worth it because of the pleasure that I get from seeing my beautiful fingers on, the, on this keyboard. So that's just another sort of very material expression of writing through sort of just like putting yourself in an uncomfortable position to write and still having a lot of pleasure from it. And then the last thing that came to mind is that even when you're, we're writers, academics, anybody who's cre creating something, which, you know, we're all creative beings, but if this is sort of what you put your time into, that pain is ultimately always going to be generative. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that that's why people engage in BDSM too, right? Because yeah. there's something generative happening um, in that process. So I just really appreciate your, your thoughts on that. And I think that in, in particular in, in gay male sex, that there is 
something unsavory in the communities about being femme, being submissive. Mm. And I hate that. Mm. I hate that a lot. And as someone who is verse, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just totally did the air quotes. Um, but also, like, really, really likes the submissive aspect of sexual expression. I, I want to honor that and like celebrate that there there's that i it might be perhaps why i love listening because it foregrounds so much how are we receiving which as a, a long time bottom it's like yes how are we receiving in re the the receptive person the the listener has a lot of ability to help guide how things work and function mm -hmm. when we listen and pay attention to our receptive practices are we defensive? Are we generative? Mm. Are we generous? Are we uh, just waiting for our next turn to speak? Or are we actually experiencing transformation when someone speaks to us? Can be really, really powerful. I've seen, and you've probably seen it, Rachel, when, when, you, when you're deep listening to someone, your body changes mm. and their affect changes. Mm -hmm. When you have a fight with your partner and like tensions are high and then you suddenly get it mm -hmm. and your your whole affect changes, yeah. that's power in listening. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I think that we need to do more of that. Mm -hmm. I'm a kind of an unapologetic, default, generous listener. Mm -hmm. Even when some people are like, you're being too generous or that person doesn't deserve generosity. I think mm -hmm. that still receiving how we can kind of transform the light of this even nasty discourse. Mm -hmm. It's a real challenge and it's not one that's done passively. Mm -hmm. There's submission right. is not passive and that's right, really, right. really important that you're just a part of the experience, the negotiation, yeah. even though you're submitting to certain things. Mm, it doesn't yeah. advocate agency. Yeah. Yeah. It's also very Libra thing of you to say. Yeah. And I'm a Libra. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Last big thing I want to get to is the implications of writing about not only sex, but your sex life, your specific scenes of sex that you have had. I want to talk about the implications of that as it relates to this sort of notion of the public-private divide and sphere. Wow, yeah. And think about the impact on your sort of professional career as somebody on the tenure track. And third, I want to know if you think that the fact that you are a cis white man made you feel safer doing that? I don't know if the answer is yes or no. I just would be interested to hear your thoughts on all of those things because it's pretty steamy, steamy narrative. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, wow. These are big questions. And the answer to all of them is that I have thought carefully. Um, being a cisgender white man is absolutely gives me confidence that is unearned um, and I feel that I'm privileging in this essay from that uh, and I want to be very careful that I still feel precarious when writing about these things mm -hmm. but um, my job talk for the job I currently have uh, I talked about queer listening in, in, in terms of how do we open each other up how do how do how does reading and throwing shade function as opening each other up so my colleagues know that they got a queer theorist, a queer mm -hmm. rhetoric and composition theorist. Um, this is a little bit more personal than any a scholarship that I've done. I, I'm just convinced that lyrical narratives are a, a really beautiful way to do scholarship. I, I, I've been persuaded, I've been moved by the lyrical scholarships of other scholars. Uh, Kathleen Livingston, I keep bringing her mm -hmm. up. I, I, she's just so, beautiful in her writing and I want to be that um, so but I am nervous mm -hmm. I am nervous professionally um, I have three vignettes talking about being fucked by mm -hmm. other people in about BDSM and the the essay starts with a um, quotation by Pat Kalafia after all homophobia is not the only form of sexual prejudice that is brilliant. Mm. That to me transformed my life when I read that, is that it's not just homophobia. Gail Rubin's um, thinking sex is still relevant today. We do live in a cons uh, an era of conservative sexual politics. And this essay is uh, a saying, I do not want to continue that. 
I, I go boldly into putting my sex on the page because it's instructive. It, it helps us think differently about rhetorical concepts. Uh, and I show in the essay, I think pretty convincingly, but that's because I wrote it and maybe I'm a little biased, but I show how the considering BDSM sex changes the way we understand re rhetoric and composing. I believe I've done a fairly good job at that. And so it's not just I want to like masturbate on the page, right? <laughs> it's that there, there's a point. I'm not there yet in my scholarship where I think like masturbating on the page is <laughs> for the masturbation on the page sake, right? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't even know if I want to do that kind of scholarship. I want to help my field, my colleagues, my students think differently about rhetorical theory. And, and I was so grateful that Jackie Rhodes allowed me to think about sex's hand in that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, my cisgender whiteness certainly gave me a, a level of confidence, but it doesn't mean that I'm still not precarious. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think conservative sexual politics does not always manifest in homophobia, but also in the fact that, you know, deviant sex is still not, not, it's still not scholarly. Mm -hmm. um, and what, there was a third one floating around. I Your, oh gosh, um, you, you did it so succinctly. Um, career, I mean, those were the public-private. Oh, public-private. Um, I worry about my career in this essay mm -hmm. uh, that was there. I, I, I worry about my ability to be considered a leader in the field. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't think I'm a leader yet, but I, have, I, I would like to be um, known as uh, I'm working mm -hmm. to, to be influential. And I really, that's one of my hopes in this piece is one of those pieces that can undercut that, certainly, if people aren't generous. Or the me. opposite. Or it could catapult, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> you know, let's hope it catapults. Yeah. Um, but then... Um, uh, so professionally, I, I have been worried. Um, also personally, mm -hmm. uh, I talk about multiple sexual experiences yeah. um, and I try to write in ways that anonymize is, yeah. is a good word for it. Or, you know, I try to center myself in the experiences, not say X, Y, and Z. Of course, if the people who saw read this article and then see themselves in that scene, they, they will see themselves in that right. scene. But um, I, don't, I, I, I think I've done an ethical job uh, with those scenes in terms of making it about me and the, the, the ritual. You, you listeners and you, Rachel, would never be able to find those. Right, about. right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate that a lot um, for many reasons. I've, I've done narrative work and academic essays, not about, not about sex and anything that's been published. Um, but I talk a lot about sort of my like working class background and so very vulnerable. And as you know, this weekend, I'm working on a memoir that's going to have a lot of stuff in it. Um, and it's so beautiful. I can't wait for your memoir. Thank Personally, you. sorry to interrupt, but like <laughs> thank you. The, the samples I've read are beautiful. Thanks, beautiful. Timothy. Thank you. But I, it's something that anybody who engages in um, creative nonfiction about themselves has to worry about in terms of ethics and all the things. Um, but it really is, it, I think it's some of the most powerful kind of writing. It's definitely more fucking fun to read than, than most other essays. Um, I had a follow-up about um, sex and the relationship to its place in the classroom because I think that mm -hmm. even beyond just sort of like they're going to see this in your ten tenure file, like will you specifically assign this to your students who yeah. you're going to be in class with? Um, I don't know. Have you thought about that? So I want I want other queer rhetoric and composition people to assign this special issue yes. to their graduate students and those who do queer rhetoric yeah. because I think what Jacqueline Rhodes has done is something special. Yeah. Um, she's allowed and created a space for for queer scholars, queer rhetoric and composition people to to unapologetically engage rhetorical theory mm -hmm. with the queer lens. Yeah. And so that's that's something that I hope. I feel like this essay perhaps would not be necessarily one that I would assign. Yeah. But if some students are struggling with the personal and academic, you know, I would give this to to students in a one-on-one -on -one conversation yeah. yep. and not the entire class. The not the entire class. Those students who understand why it is that I would be sharing this. Yeah. Um, Personally, me, 
Yes. Yes. But I hope that everyone else assigns this essay right. and that students like email me out of nowhere and be right. like, you know, Timothy, hey, I, you know, uh, right. Professor so-and-so assigned this. I, right. I would, I would, we all want that as yeah. scholars oh, totally. to have For our sure. work mean something to students. Um, I think it's just, it, this piece feels like a transmitted, transformative aspect of my scholarship. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working with Sylvia Rivera right now. Mm -hmm. I, I, I Sylvia is is guiding me and moving me in this, mm -hmm. these ways that are really profound. Um, I want to foreground my relationship to her. Mm -hmm, I want mm -hmm. to center myself uh, in, in relationship to her, and I want to demonstrate how Sylvia is so important to us. Mm -hmm. And in this, my colleagues who do lyrical narrative scholarship have have given me strength to do it too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I. It feels so right and mm -hmm. it feels so scholarly and just that I don't want to go back. Yep. I don't want to do um, something else. Right. So, I, yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. That's lovely. The last thing I want to say about that, um, and of course you can respond if, you, if, you, if you're moved. <laughs> I don't mean to have the last word, but um, <laughs> just that I love that this is a narrative about positive sexual experiences where I think actually academia and the world is much more inclined to accept discussions of ex people's ex sexual experiences if, if they're traumatic. Like, well, it's okay for somebody to talk about their rape, but it's not okay for somebody to talk about their pleasure. And that to me is something I'm very committed to trying to challenge. And I love that your essay 100% does that. And it is so fucking vitally important to ending rape culture, to fucking center pleasurable sexual experiences and destigmatize that. And it fucking drives me bananas that it's like, oh, it's okay to read like trauma. It's okay to fucking read all this brutal trauma. <laughs> like whether if you're reading, if you do research on slave narratives or if you do anything that is so brutal and yet we can't read about pleasure. It's, it's really fascinating to me. So I love that you're, you're doing that. Uh, thank you. I can't wait for everybody else to read it. It's so good. Uh, we'll remind everybody when it comes out. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you very cool. much. Absolutely. Will you stay with me for RWL? Of course. Amazing. I love that. What are you reading, watching, and listening to this week, Timothy? So I am reading Sarah Ahmed's Living a Feminist Life. Um, Namesake of the show. Shout out Sarah Ahmed. Shout out Sarah Ahmed. It's really lovely. Um, watching, I am binge watching Hannibal right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so stylized and so like, yes. <laughs> and listening, Lucia, mm -hmm. I love them. I love them and they sound just as, as good live in studio recordings as they do on their albums. Mm -hmm. uh, they are really special. Um, Hard on My Sleeve. Is like one of those painful songs. I, I once made a playlist of the saddest songs in the world before mm -hmm. I knew about this song. But mm -hmm. if I were to make it again, this song would be on it again. <laughs> it, they're they're so good. They're so good. Awesome. Cool. Um, I'm. Oh gosh, I wasn't prepared. Well, I'm reading. Well, no, I am. So I'm trying to pitch this thing that's related to ghosts, and so I'm thinking about death and ghosts, and decided to give a closer read to uh, Vincent Brown's. The Reaper's Garden, which I hadn't read cover to cover yet. Vince is a friend of mine, and so I'm reading that now, um, learning some really brutal history about slave slavery and death and things. Um, watching, I kind of want to give a shout out to what we watched this weekend. The John Mulaney stand-up special so was funny. so fucking funny. Timothy and I were losing it on the couch. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> So everybody, if you have Netflix, check out the John Mulaney comedy special. It's weird and hilarious. And then listening, now that it's warm out, I asked you yesterday, I was like, because I know Timothy's type of music that he likes, and it's usually, if it's just like weird and a little bit electric, and weird is generally more so than even electric. Um, so I didn't know if he liked a good, solid melody, like Americana, like, and we found out there was some crossover. But anyway, I'm, now that the weather's warm, Logan and I, my partner, uh, our Logan is actually invested in like straight up like pop country. I am not invested in that, but I am invested in like stuff that makes I don't drink beer, but stuff that makes you want to drink beer on a porch, <laughs> which includes for me 
more Jason Molina, who I talked about last week, who has a couple of different projects. Who's, he's deceased, unfortunately, but he makes beautiful music. Um, Lucero is another band that's sort of like an alt country band, punk influence band. So things like things like that, that affect, if you will. And as someone who likes weird music, they, that was really beautiful. Like I was like, thank you for introducing me. To oh, good. So, yeah. Cool. Cool. You. Yeah. Well, Timothy, WTF power. WTF power. Yay! Thanks. That was so awesome. You're so smart. Stop until we meet again. 